The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, John Cuna. Today, we'll be discussing Brad Marchand and reputation, deviating a little bit from our typical format. I mean, we're still doing one athlete, one uh, concept, one issue. I think in the, in the past four episodes, uh, we mainly focused on you know mental health issues and you know an emotion. So we did anxiety, depression. And ADHD were one, two, and four. And then we did uh, our third episode is on Serena Williams and anger. So anger is more of an emotion. This time we're doing uh, reputation or image. You know, we kind of tossed around how to phrase it. And I think this is this is interesting because while it's not necessarily a mental health issue or an emotion, it's still relevant not only to to pro sports uh, but also to to real life. I think people mm-hmm. uh, I shouldn't say real life, but non non pro sports uh, life for people listening. You know, I think from the sports angle. You know, you have people like Brad Marchand and other people in, in sports that are that kind of take on a certain role. They take on the villain, so to speak, maybe in, in pro wrestling. I think it's sometimes called the heel, that kind of stuff. And I think you see that more in hockey than maybe some other uh, sports, you know, like baseball, basketball. You don't really see it as much there. Um, but in hockey, you definitely get these these troublemakers, you know, these people that kind of take on that that role. And sometimes that is what keeps them in the league. Um, so for, whereas for non-sports, you definitely see an equivalent. I think you get, you know, if you look at a couple examples I wrote down, you get, um, you know, in high school, a lot of people, you know, they grow up with the same people their entire lives. They don't leave that town, at least at the earliest until they graduate high school. Often you can get typecast in a certain role or a certain image or certain reputation, uh, sometimes through your own actions, sometimes through no fault of your own. Mm -hmm. And it's tough for people to shed that sometimes. Uh, other examples are it, within families, people definitely take on specific roles, and those are very hard to shed. You know, yeah. think like, you know, uh, the baby, the family, youngest sibling, um, that kind of thing. Sometimes that can be hard to, sh- uh, those roles can be hard to shed for people within the family as they grow up. Um, another one is in the workplace. You know, people take on roles in the workplace. Sometimes they do what they have to do to, uh, to get the job done. And that may help them short term, but it, they might feel kind of pigeonholed in that role moving forward. So there are a lot of real life examples. So that's one reason why I think we talked about um, focusing on Brad Marchand. And obviously, he's our first Boston athlete. So mm-hmm. uh, we had to get that in the top five. I'm excited right? to talk about him today. Uh, yeah. I'm excited, too. So what? Um, I'm just going to let you go, John. What's your take <laughs> on, on Brad Marchand? Well, you know, for, first and foremost, I think you, you, you sort of touched on it. But, uh, you know, the the role that he had sort of throughout his entire career it was really interesting to learn about sort of his you know, when he started playing, he started skating, I think at like two years old and, you know, his mom always kind of talked about him. He was always like mischievous and, yeah. you know, so I think it's been, you know, a character trade for him for a long time. And, you know, I think in, in hockey, like you mentioned, there's, there are, there's like the agitator, the fighter, the sniper, the skater, the playmaker, you know, like there are these roles and he clearly fits that agitator role. Yeah. Um, I know I think for a long time it really worked for him. And, and he talks about this in some of the interviews that he's done and some of the, um, you know, he's outspoken and we'll get into uh, some of the penalty history that he's had. Um, but, you know, he that was what worked for him going through everything. He was that pest. Um, you know, the nickname is the rat um, throughout the league. Not necessarily the best, but, um, you know, he he was the agitator. He was the yeah. guy on the ice to get under the skin of those top players, to be skating around, buzzing around, um, get them off their game, get them distracted. And I think for a long time, it really worked for him to get him to where he was. You know, he wasn't a player in the league that like his upbringing, he was pretty solid throughout his whole piece. Even when he was for the Providence Bruins and mm-hmm. um, in the AHL, he wasn't like a typical you know, his numbers and stats wouldn't dictate that he'd be like a top six lineman mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in the NHL. He really sort of was just, he was good, but not not to the same extent. So, you know, I think he, he tried to really, I, I think when, with roles and 
you know, with, with these things that we get, we get sort of pigeonholed into, then you start to sort of fulfill that role and sort of like, this is who I am. This is what yeah, I have you to take it on for your own identity. Big time. Yeah, absolutely. And you start to do things to sort of reinforce that. And I think for the circumstances with Brad is that it really got the better of him. And he really, you know, he started getting, making stupid plays. He started um, doing bad penalties and all those things. I think it went too far um, for him and really started to actually be a distraction. And so, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes that, you know, you'll do something because it works, but then, you know, like everything, things evolve. And I think it got to the point with him, like that 2014, 2015 season where there was like that plateau that he sort of reached the place where this is no longer really working for him anymore. Um, You know, his numbers were were solid. He was always pretty good, but the penalties were stacking up. He's becoming more of a distraction on the team. Um, And that was you know, the the point where he really had to make the decision of is this is this really the best role that I want to continue to be in or do I need to find a different balance? Um I think the Bruins even kinda of came to him and said something's time. gotta give yep. kind of thing. Read him the riot act a little bit. You yep, know? exactly. So, you know, I think that was one of the biggest struggles for him was that 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 transition from okay this is what's put me into the NHL yeah. right this is what's gotten yeah. me to yep. this place this role has benefited me so much to get here it's hard to let that go yeah right? it's risky it's scary it, you know he has to do things differently necessarily yep. and I think that that's that's a hard thing for anybody let totally. alone a pro athlete who's worked literally there in t- since he's two years old yeah. to get to that level and then to give that up you know is a hard hard transition and I think that's one that really he struggled with yeah I think it's scary for for people yeah. in general when you when something has especially when something's worked for you in in any kind of minor or major way to let that go there's fear behind that it's right. like uh, one it's your norm you're used to it and two there's fear behind what if, if I give this up what's left you know what what if everything comes crashing down because this is what i've relied on i think the most common you know non-sports example of this is is the class clown right when people <laughs> people not even just in school sometimes outside of school within the group people take on that that class clown that comedic kind of role that's sometimes self-deprecating as a way to kind of fit in as a way to get laughs as a way to feel accepted and they become overly reliant on that sometimes they don't see how far it goes I think people that do that, um, we work a lot with young guys. I mean, I see that all the time. Or mm-hmm. That's their way to feel good about themselves because they will sabotage themselves to make themselves look funny in front of others. Yep. And they think they're getting respect. They're often not, but that's the only way they feel good and it's tough to let go of that. And I think that kind of draws parallels between Marshand and this is a you know pro sports example. Right. So I, I remember he was drafted, I think, in the third round. I usually keep tabs on Boston athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not everyone. Hockey's got a bunch of rounds where it's like sort of similar to baseball yeah. where it's you know, it's not like the NBA is two rounds. The NFL is like six or seven, I think seven. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the NHL and the, and uh, baseball have, you know, tons of rounds in the drafts. So you can't keep track of all of them. But mm-hmm. I, I remember him being drafted, you know, seeing him come up through Providence. And then I believe he was like a fourth liner with the Bruins initially. Yeah. yeah. And just clearly like worked, you know, was willing to go and do things that other mm-hmm. people weren't willing to do. I think he became a fan favorite really quickly, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I remember that sort of you know escalating, and then him really kind of taking on that role, but then starting to get better. So to give a quick bio on Brad Marchand, he's a Canadian pro hockey player for the Bruins in the NHL. He plays left wing. He was selected by the Bruins in the third round of the 2006 NHL draft, and he won the Stanley Cup with the Bruins in 2011 and was an All Star in 2017, 2018. I think around. 2015 or or off season after 2015 is when he you know we'll, we'll get into this but he starts to to take on a different approach to training and he works with a psychiatrist or sports psychiatrist and a sports psychologist and then um, things take off he really kind of transcends his role mm-hmm. um, so a few random uh, facts about Brad Marchand he's from Halifax Nova Scotia his nickname as you mentioned is the rat <laughs> he's only five nine and obviously that you know it's hard enough to become a pro athlete and be successful but when you're undersized for your sport that that you know makes it even that much harder mm-hmm. he's also voted the dirtiest player in the league by his peers in the 2020 poll i actually think it's interesting that that was in 2020 because I, I think he has not entirely but largely changed around his demeanor and his antics and toned them down a lot maybe yeah. not entirely but right. a lot but this stuff sticks with you. And I think mm-hmm. like you, you, you know, when it comes to reputation, you can't always shed that right away. And it takes a little bit of time and, and you know, you re- it requires patience. Um, and so, practice of yeah. doing what the difference, right? If he was this rat yes. for a long yeah. time, it's hard long to not time. get snapped yeah. back, back into that place. Absolutely. Yeah. People don't always believe the change right away. You got to really stick with it mm-hmm. and, and build that trust. 
So we, you know, we put, we put a list of his like transgressions, I guess you could call them, and I was going to go through them. And now looking at it, it's just kind of daunting. I think maybe we'll just summarize because there's so many. I mean, there's, you know, at least four, four or five different uh, situations where he was either suspend, suspended and then also a couple other situations where either he was either fined mm-hmm. and suspended or just, just fined. So it, it, I mean, it's too long to even go through, but clearly – you know, from 2011 until 2018, there was just at least two of these a year where yeah. he was just getting, you know, going way too far. And he even admits that he's he crossed the line. And I think that line is hard to find. If that's going to be your role. Mm-hmm. you got to be pushing the limit at all times or else it doesn't work. You, know, right. you can't come 30% away from the line and mm-hmm. expect to fulfill that rat role. Yeah. you got to really go up to it and sometimes cross it. You really can't do that, be in that role without crossing the line from time to time, not to justify it. But right. uh, so he talks about that. In in 2018, this se- I, th- I I seem to when I look back, I feel like he was already sort of moving away from it, and maybe maybe the uh, intensity of the playoffs is what kind of got him to could make some of these mistakes. Because the 2018 playoffs is where he had a couple licking incidents, which was definitely <laughs> like it just went to a whole different um, yeah. different level. Um, so that was clearly you know this that's a quick rundown of of, of Brad Marsh and what led to him kind of getting this reputation. We put um, his, you know, I didn't really see anything specific about his, you know, we look for athletes and what charity they tend to work with the most or, or charitable organization they prefer. I didn't see anything uh, specific, but I did notice that in, I think in 2015, he had connected um, with Noticeability, which is a nonprofit that dedica- that is dedicated to helping those with dyslexia to identify their unique strengths and build self-esteem. So I thought we would at least kind of plug that yeah. and we'll put that in the in the show notes as well for people in case they want to donate. Um so we'll get into our player spotlight and review our takeaways. We've already gotten into a few just talking <laughs> loosely mm-hmm. about Brad Marchand because we are Boston sports fans. So we're pretty familiar with him even before doing this episode. But uh, mainly, you know, for the player spotlight, again, we, John, you and I, for those listening, we don't talk about our takeaways but ahead of time. We don't prepare in that way. We mm-hmm. prepare on our own. We do our research. We, we both look at kind of the same sources mm-hmm. and we get our own takeaways. Then we kind of come in and try to have an organic conversation. And so mainly, uh, you know, the sources we use this time were his his Players Tribune article was was what I took from the most. And then obviously there's a ton of stuff written in the media about about his suspensions and his antics and his image and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some, what was your maybe we'll start with one key takeaway uh, that you had? Yeah, my fr- my first one, which we already kind of covered, was just sort of the the agitator role and how attractive it can be, especially if you are the agitator, because with within especially with hockey, you know, it's you know, you do, you get pigeonholed into these places. Okay, you're the agitator. This is what your role is. You need to do that. And for him, it worked for a really long time and got into the NHL. So that was really my biggest one of how hard it is to then break in that fear of, you know, not being the agitator anymore. And, um, you know, my, my second takeaway, I kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, when he finally did a little bit more so success um, sort of followed. Um, but, you know, watching him sort of or learning more about his development through was really gave me a more sense of like why this was something for him too. I think he had, he talks a little bit about how to like sit a little bit chip on his shoulder being this like five, nine guy going up against, you know, guys like, mm-hmm. you know, he's not going against the Dan Ochara, but uh, you know, these big monsters on the ice. I think that that's, you know, he hold, he held that as sort of a badge of honor for a long, long time. And I think that that was one of the things that again, was really hard for him to to separate from. Because he was kind of undersized his whole career whole coming up right? yeah, before definitely. the NHL. So he's yeah. used to that. He was always right? in yeah. that position, right? Yeah. And then, you know, when he st- when he was on the when he was on the Bruins, I think he was on the line with Sean Thornton and uh yeah. I forget who the other who the lineman was, which was like your fourth line Is grinder. Campbell? Maybe Campbell. Gregor uh, Campbell maybe? Not sure. Yeah. But I know I know it was Sean and I know that he the, the I mean Sean Thornton on the Bruins for anyone who's watched or been a Bruins fan for a long time, he was the fighter. Yeah. Uh on it was always kind of a pleasure to to watch him yeah. on the ice. But you know, now Brad going from fourth line grinder agitator to, you know, the Merlot line, um, and being one of the best forwards in the league was a big transition and he had to, you know, transcend agitator to um to more of a production guy and sort of that top guy and you have to leave a little bit of that behind. Yeah. So um, my, my second point, I kind of go more about, about that, but those, that was my first like major takeaway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the odds were clearly stacked against him. I mean, I think he even refers to a, a quote from his coach. His coach said to him early on that he really, you know, kind of stuck with him where the coach said, you know, the statistics say that only 0.01% of you will make it to the NHL. And that really mm-hmm. stuck with him. The odds are probably even less than that. I don't, I don't know what the, the now, numbers yeah, are. Yeah, but probably, less. probably even less than that. But that stuck with him. 
And I think he was looking around and, and saying, I'm not even the best on my own peewee team. Right. What what the hell am I going to do to get to the next level? Mm-hmm. And this th- there's a, a lot of cool points that I kind of had, like mini takeaways within this takeaway, because I think he, not only were the odds stacked against him, but he kind of, even from a young age, the way he described things was pretty cool in that he he was able to separate you know, dream from plan from reality. And I mm-hmm. think that's often something people struggle with, where I think you have to dream and kind of plan as if you're going to reach the highest possible level. Yep. While also not overlapping that with your self-worth and understanding that you're probably not going to get that, but you got to plan as if you are. Because if you don't, you're, you have no shot. <laughs> if you don't plan or dream to get to that highest possible level, you're never going to get to that. Like You, you absolutely have to ex- not expect, but you have to plan and hope for that to happen while knowing that it's probably not, and yeah. that you have to be okay if it doesn't, right? But still plan and work your you know, your ass off. Yeah, you have to, be able to see to. yourself get to that place. Absolutely, absolutely. So that was one kind of mini takeaway from this, and then also that you know he not only were the odds stacked against him, but he clearly had no shame, even from an, in this <laughs> sense anyway, uh, from an early age about hey, because he recognized I think there was this extra gear he tapped into when someone went after his brother, which is a whole nother conversation sidebar <laughs> we can get into in terms of when, you know, the, the, the level of red you see when someone goes after a, a brother, especially, but someone in, in a game, I think when he was younger, went after his brother and then the coach kind of told him like, I want you to go you know, run, take runs at this guy for the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. And he, and he and a couple of his buddies I think did, and it led to the guy taking a penalty. And that was when he kind of realized, Hey, you know, if, if I only have a 0.01% chance to get noticed, Maybe this is what I got to do. Right. And that's kind of where that was formed. So I thought that was interesting. Another takeaway, you know, I had from his Players Tribune article was just the the intro. Like, talk about two minutes for hooking. Am I right? Like, <laughs> it, he starts with, if you like me, you'll like this story. If you hate me, you'll love it. I, Boom. Hooked. Like, even <laughs> if you hate him. Yeah. If I was, I'm trying to, like, obviously, I, I, I think he's great. And I've been a fan for a long time. So, like, I'm in the first first sentence, right? If you like me, you'll like this story. But I'm trying to imagine, like, being someone that hates him. And reading, if you hate me, you'll love it. Boom! I'm gonna, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna keep reading that. So who knew Brad Marchand was a, a literary genius? Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that was gonna be a takeaway. You know, he also was clearly clowning guys since age three. I mean, did you read that story about how some kid, when he was three years old, stole his little like you know motor cart no. thing that he was in, and he just like absolutely clowned the guy, and, like <laughs> kind of ripped him off, and like started driving around and waving at him with a smirk <laughs> on his face. I think that's when his mom said, like, that's the look you've had on your face since a young age. Right. You just like to kind of, you know, needle people a little bit. So he actually even brings up that his little brother Jeff was the original pest and kind of the inspiration for him to be, which I think is ironic because it's like Bre- Brad Marchand took on that role in the NHL. But we've talked about how these types of roles can happen within families too. And his younger brother is kind of the, you know, known as the pest within the family, I think. Um, so I thought that was interesting how like he he kind of took that from his younger brother. Younger brothers do have the ability to do that. Uh, I hope mine's not listening because he'll probably be mad at me for this. But they, <laughs> they have the ability to to take on that pest role. So any other takeaways for you? No one of, one of the things that you that you mentioned, I just wanted to quickly sort of respond to was sort of that idea that you know he's the guy that the player that when he's on your team you love him. Oh, yeah, right? you love him. Absolutely love yeah. him, but I but everybody else who's not a fan hates him, yes. right? And so other examples that I can think of would be uh, like PK Subban, right? Mm-hmm. When he was mm-hmm. playing, especially when he was playing for Montreal yeah. and the Canadians, that rivalry was big, and he's one of the most talented defensemen in in the league. Yeah. And I hated him, yes, because yes. he just crushed us when he went against us. And um, there was you know, another guy on, on the Canadians, and McGallagher, maybe, that yeah, was sort of like Marchand too, who's just like I'm sure those fans loved yep. him. And oh to yeah, watch him was just you know clenching your teeth the yeah. entire time, right? exactly. And another player too that that had the same sort of role as as Martian that always kind of comes to mind is, is uh Dan Carcillo yep. at same type of guy just like every, everywhere when he was on the ice you knew where he was and you were just waiting for him to just like yeah. do something to get yeah. under your skin you're yep. just like oh, I hate this guy <laughs> but if he, but if you're a fan you're like this is the one of the yeah. best players so it's I it's hate interesting that Bob Barker <laughs> I hate that Bob Barker but it's interesting how like the even the role that the agitator role can be if it's if you're a fan you love it if you're not it's like yeah. this this hated yeah. person a- absolutely i think another takeaway for me is is uh you know a couple things that are kind of related the concept of luck and help right i think in order to be successful you know luck is such a huge part of success right his family moved to a new town he happened to be on a lake with three other kids as neighbors who were as obsessed with hockey as he was they became best friends for life, and I'm I'm guessing like probably pushed each other to excel in in hockey as well. You know, on the ice, 
And so, you know, you need a little bit of luck along the way when it comes to being successful. I think, um, you know, I remember some kind of formula for success. Being, I forget where I read it, but it was kind of like, you know, equal parts, you know, uh, talent or, or IQ, right? Mm-hmm. So natural ability, hard work and determination, work ethic, that kind of thing. That's the second part. And then luck. You know, you, you look at any person that's been successful, you really do – there has to be a little bit of luck involved in the way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the luck relates to that other kind of hybrid point I had on this one, which is that help. You know, success does not only involve luck, but it also help from others. How many think it's a solo act, right? I think, you know, you have to be willing to accept help. We see this with young guys all the time who, who just think that they have this myth in their head that being successful has to be done solo. Like they have yeah. to figure this out, not only just success, but life. They have to figure out life on their own. Mm-hmm. Before they're even 18, they're supposed to just have this figured out. And anything mm-hmm. short of doing that on their own is a failure in their minds. And I think it's important to try to identify what drives that in people because to me it's it's shame it's shame in the form of should statements right we talk about different types of what are called automatic thoughts and that's a jargony term so don't flag me johnny but uh, automatic <laughs> thoughts are, yeah there, it's a cognitive behavioral therapy term it just means like the the quick hit kind of thoughts that pop into your head on any given time during the day right this happens to every person all day long and there are different types of automatic thoughts that people have they fit into different categories like black and white thinking is one uh, sometimes called all or nothing thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, self-labeling is another one. Should statements are one of those things where we say like, I should be farther along in my life mm-hmm. or I should have known better. I should have seen that coming. Those are those are tricky statements because they seem innocent, but they're embedded in shame. They're all driven by shame. So to me, when a person doesn't accept that help from others is absolutely a part of success, it's a necessary part. And it means you're intelligent for accepting that, whether that's getting help in therapy or it's just getting help from, from your network to... Yep to you know, lift you up through the ranks through your career, that is absolutely part of, of, of what drives success. So I thought that was really you know key. Yeah, and it's I mean it's important. I mean, in, in a lot of the stuff when I was reading about Brad Marchand, I mean he wasn't driving himself to those early morning skates and early morning practices. He wasn't you know all those different things. Totally. He, had a, he had a supportive family who was able to help him through that. And like you said, I think it is shame, and I think it is a little bit of just the messaging that guys especially get of like you got to tough it up and do it yourself. Yeah. Right? You're not a man if you can't do it yourself. Yeah. And it's just not true. And, and you know, it, why, if you could have some support and help towards where you want to go, why wouldn't you take that? Um, seems to be the question that I usually, I usually get into and there's no answer, right? There's no yeah. answer for why, why would you not want to have, have support or have help towards where you want to go? And there's, there's no logical there's no answer. Logical yeah. Answer. It's an emotional right. answer, yeah, right? It's, it's that shame that drives right. them to think it, yep. that if I do this with help, it, that's going to prove I'm still not good enough. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such bullshit, but it's yeah. what we think, right? right? We think that we're kind of conditioned, especially from a young age, especially as guys, I think, to um to think it's this you know pride filled solo act. And yep. It's just not. That doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. He lists you know a couple in that Players Tribune article. He really goes down the line or, and, and just talks about even at the NHL level how much help he had to get better. Right, Gregory Campbell helped him learn how to train. Chris Kelly helped him learn how to be a professional. Mm-hmm. Zdeno Chara helped him mm-hmm. learn how to ma- maintain his body as he gets older um, and also not, you know, learning how to not be too high or too low with expectations, right? Which right. sounded a lot that reminded me of your discussion on neutrality. Mm-hmm. And it was Trevor Moad yep. and neutrality in one of our other episodes. And then he talks about Patrice Bergeron and just to me that the help was just an all around approach, right? I think, um, you know, for, for every rat you have on a team, I think you also have someone in the role of Patrice Bergeron who's kind of like an all around, ca- you know, captain material. I know. Chara was the captain, mm-hmm. um, and I think maybe Bergeron was the assistant uh, yeah. up until now. Now yep. that Chara's gone, he might be the. I'm sure he'll be the captain. Mm-hmm. But you have that guy that just kind of is a solid professional, and he's a great player, mm-hmm. and he's a great teammate, mm-hmm. and he's just commands respect. Yep. I think uh, Bergeron clearly was that for for Brad Marsh, and he makes comments about that. So he, you know, not only did he have help from a family perspective and help from some luck and having these friends in his life, yeah. but he had it at the NHL level too. And so, one, it's it's good, it's lucky that you have that. But two, you have to be open to taking advantage, right, of that mm-hmm. in a in a positive way. Because a lot of people have help, but again, if you come in with that mindset that I got to do it on my own, you're going to reject it. You're not you're not going to be have an open mind to receiving that help, and that's what's gonna what's gonna cost a lot of people. So, right, it's gonna fight back against that like paradigm in your head of like, well, if I do accept it, then what does that mean about yes, me? Exactly, right? and it's exactly yeah. yeah, yeah, which is which it really is a shame because I think it, it leads to people missing a lot of uh, opportunities. For yeah, themselves. see it see it too often. Absolutely, same here. So, um, a couple other uh, takeaways I had, you know, just you know after. You know, he, he transcended the role of rat, and I think that was after he he prepped different after the 2015 season, worked with a sports psychiatrist, 
trained differently. Um, he revealed that, you know, he, the newfound consistency was all about a change in both his mental and physical preparation that he had made. And so he, he went from kind of the, the annoying rat player to putting up 30 plus goals and 80 mm-hmm. plus points per season. And he even had a hundred, well, over a hundred points in 2019. 19, yeah. So he, you know, I know his, his peers still clearly voted as him as dirtiest player in 2020, but I think that started to shift and his antics have reduced a little bit and his play has excelled. And so he's really kind of um, taking that to the next step, even uh, making the all-star team in 2017, 2018. So a couple other, you know, mini takeaways, the appearance, we talked about this one other episode, but appearance and demeanor on the outside doesn't always match what's going on on the inside. You know, he, in one of the articles, I think it refers to him as like, you know, he'll walk through the locker room and kind of have this, you know, cocky kind mm-hmm. of air to him. But at the time, at, at times he's really not feeling that way on the inside. And I think we do see the lot where just because someone's acting one way on the outside, um, a, not only, you know, means that are feeling the same on the inside, but sometimes that outward appearance can actually be a reflection of the opposite happening on the inside. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, Compensating for how they feel internally. Absolutely. Trying to like trick themselves into feeling like, well, I, I don't feel that. So let me just show everybody that I yes, feel different. Exactly. Maybe that maybe then it'll sink in and I'll, and I'll believe it too. For sure. No, you, know, you see that, especially at a young age in, in middle school, end of middle school and yeah. early high school is that you see guys, um, especially, you know, uh, when they, you see bullies, bullying behavior, that is always a, just a reflection of someone who's completely insecure on the inside. Oh yeah, um, it's a it's a good kind of light bulb when you see that because I mean I know you and I kind of do this for a living, right? We we work as therapists, so we we kind of understand the, the underlying psychological stuff. But mm-hmm. it's good to teach people that because when you see that, it's just to me, it, it you almost you learn how to translate that for what's really going on instead of just going about what you see on the outside. Right. Um, this. This also, you know, the going through the rundown of Brad Marchand kind of re- revealed to me how much things have kind of changed a little bit. Because in this, there was a 2015 article where the author said towards the end of the article, you know, Marchand might hear some taunts about, um, you know, the the big mental health reveal, meaning he worked with somebody in the offseason. Mm-hmm. And I think that that shows you because that would not you wouldn't a player I don't think would have to worry about that as much in 2020. No. Um, having worked with a sports psychologist, having gone to therapy, that kind of thing. In 2015, five years ago, I know that would have been that was still a very big deal. So mm-hmm. to me, that that kind of shows you in a great way how much things, have, how far things have come in the last five years with the stigma being reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, last takeaway for me is that he clearly spends some time, uh, some spare time, taking people down a peg or two on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I, I it's think pretty active. <laughs> yes, and and while you know we could take a number of angles on this. I mean, on the one hand, is it you know, is it the right forum to like, you know, just shame people on Twitter? Maybe not. But at the same time, you know, I think sometimes people have to learn that you can't just because you're behind a keyboard, you can't just fire off stuff without expecting to get something back from the people that you're trying to take down, mm-hmm. especially because these, these, you know, pro athletes are in the limelight. They got to deal with so much flack from people left and right. You know, they all have their limits. So I think it's it's important to, to learn just because, uh, you know, you're safe in your own home. You're on a smartphone, and they're some you know wealthy, successful athlete. Doesn't mean you can just say whatever you want. So I kind of like seeing that when he does that a little bit. I don't yeah, know about you, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Okay. Um, all right. So we're going to transition a little bit into you know more of the, the mental health spotlight. I mean, again, I think for this subject, it's it's a little bit different in that we're not reviewing a specific mental health issue. We're not necessarily talking about a specific emotion, but we're we're talking about reputation and about image. And I think in the beginning, you know, at the top of the episode, we kind of talked about how you know, pro sports versus everyday life examples, right? Um, being typecast in a role, right? Yeah. Whether it's in the family, in the workplace, amongst amongst friend groups, you know, how do you repair your reputation? If that's what something someone's trying to do. And I think the first question for me that comes up is like, is it real or is it perceived? I think that's the first thing that pops into my mind because a lot of times, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this quite a bit, that when someone thinks their reputation is is kind of tainted or they think people around them are judging them it's not always happening do you see that a lot yeah okay. definitely um so that's it's in their own head because they're own they're just insecure about it themselves yes right? yeah exactly so i think that's very important to figure out because if it's if it's perceived you know uh slight from others or judgment from others then we have to go about it one way if it's real you know if you're you really are uh, pigeonholed in a role because of something you did or because of something you, that's no fault of your own 
that might take a different approach. We don't want to go down the road of trying to change that if we don't have to because right. you just imagine that that uh, your reputation is something that it's actually not. It's two different types of work, right? Yes. If, if it's reality, then you can focus on the behavior. If it's perception, you can focus on the perception. Correct. Brad, it's maybe a little yeah, bit yeah. of both, right? <laughs> I would say it's him with him it was mostly behavior. Mostly yeah, behavior. Yeah, mostly yeah. real life. Trying to be um, kind to the Boston sports guy. Absolutely. Whereas with non-sports, non-athlete examples, I think I'll, I, I would actually say it's much more often uh, perceived and imagined yeah. than it is uh, otherwise. But so again, knowing the difference between you know uh, whether it's perceived or real is really key, and then I think it, it's important to to call it the difference between reputation and self-image, which I think is kind of similar, but it's its own thing. You know what you think of yourself is not necessarily what people think of you. Mm -hmm. um, I think oftentimes we think people are paying attention to us far more than they actually are, right? Um, so that was one takeaway I had. Um, you know, anything specific that you want to get into with regard to reputation or image? Yeah, you know, one of the things that you know, as we're talking about, like how to either reconstruct reputation or not allow it to dictate, you know, future behaviors. You know, and we, we spoke about this a little bit earlier too. But his work with a sports psychiatrist or psychologist clearly made an impact for him. You know, it, the the trend. I think that that allowed him the opportunity to be self reflective and to really look at. You know, again, I'm speculating in terms of what they did in their their work, but. You know the 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 output on paper is clear, right? He had never really broken thirty goals in the season, never really been like a major point person. Obviously, being put up on the top line, that's going to lead to more goals and output. But his agitation level and his play and his role really, really shifted after that twenty fifteen season. Mm -hmm. And you know, like you mentioned too, the Bruins sort of came to him and said, like, "Look, we're seeing a plateau here. We're seeing lots of penalties stack up." This is becoming an issue. We'd like you to kind of go back. And, and he spoke about it in some of his articles that he'd worked with somebody for off-ice stuff from beforehand. And yeah. he stopped when he went pro. Mm. And then, I, you know, we've talked about in, in previous episodes about like distraction being a really sh good short-term solution mm -hmm. for dealing with some of these things. And I think that it kind of caught up to him in 2014-15. And then that helped him to kind of move forward and go into the like producing. And now ever since, he's been... A, a high point producer. And I think that that was one of the things that I thought was really important because he, you know, he was able to sort of maybe not shake his reputation, but not allow it to dictate how he was going to continue in future yeah, play yeah. in the league. And I think that that's extremely, extremely important. And the other thing too, that you mentioned that I, I had the same sort of takeaway is that, you know, reputation doesn't equal reality. And I think that the self image that we have of ourselves is obviously far more important than how other people perceive us. And like you said, I think we often spend so much time or sometimes thinking like, well, how are other people going to view my my actions? But the reality is that everybody else is worried about how everybody else is going to be. Yes. You know, they don't have time Themselves. to be thinking about you, right? They totally. don't have time. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's just not the way that things work. And so it, that's why it's so important to be working on developing our own self-image of how we think of ourselves and how we want to behave and how we want to act moving forward. And I think acknowledging our reputation is important, especially when it's behavior-based, maybe in the circumstance of yeah, Brad Marchand, yeah. to acknowledge and own those situations and not try to ignore them because there can be growth from that of saying like, okay, this didn't really work for me. So I got to make sure that I'm not doing that again, but mm -hmm. here's how I'm going to move forward. And I think, you know, I imagine that's a lot of the work that he did working with that sports psychologist. I'm not sure if he's still working with that person or not, but I think the ability to drop the reputation and not allow it to continue to propel his behaviors moving forward and just say like, okay, that's how people see me, but this is how I'm going to move forward. I think that was a big transition for him. And ever since he's done that, he's been a top line, a top six lineman in the league. Yeah. And it requires, I mean, it has to require some intense level of acceptance to say, yes. I cannot do anything about what's happened up to this point. All I can do is try to define what I want to see moving forward, right? What, what do I want the change to be? What do I want myself to transition to moving forward and identify that and turn it into a process. We yeah. talk about process a lot. Yep. You have to put your foot down and, and make a deal with yourself about what you want to be different and then take that goal and transition it into a process through which you can apply on a daily basis to yep. get from A to B. Yep. And he clearly had to do that because, you know, if if he hadn't committed to putting the past behind him, I think he'd still be stuck mm -hmm. in that role. I don't think he would have made those changes. Mm -mm. So it's impressive. And you made another good point. I really wish people... It's not possible to do this, but I wish people could see for themselves just how little of other people's attention span and thought process revolves around them. I mean, if you could see some kind of a graph that could show you, you know, the collective amount of, of, of time that's actually spent of others around you thinking mm -hmm. about you, 
you'd be shocked at how little it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that I actually think it might lead to other <laughs> consequences. Yeah, right. not important enough or something yeah. like that. But yeah, it's it, you know people are insecure. Most people are to, and it, I think everyone is a little bit. I mm-hmm. don't think there's there's such a thing as a person who is 100% secure. I don't think that exists. So. Mm-hmm. It's a range. People range from mildly or, you know, in a limited way insecure to majorly insecure. Yep. Um, and so the, as they go up that scale, it's less and less about you, right? Mm-hmm. So people are not paying attention to us as much as we think. Yeah. I think one situation that everybody can relate to is when you, if you're having a conversation with someone or if you're just like walking down the street, even if it's if, if it's people you know or even people you don't and you see someone like look at you and then laugh, Right. Initial, you're like, what? Are they, they're obviously making fun of me. That I've done something that like I, I shouldn't have done. You immediately yeah. feel that sense of judgment, and the, the the probability that that person is taking the time to judge you, smile about it, or make a comment to somebody else is so low. Yeah, it's yeah. that I think that that's a lot of the times, a lot of the work that you look to do with with people of like, they're not gonna take up time and space mental mental capital to like be thinking about you and judging you when they've got all their other stuff that's going on for them um i think that happens all the time totally and and even in situations where let's say they were laughing at you like let's say you're, right. you're walking down the street and you had like ketchup on your face or something like that and someone <laughs> saw it and they just kind of like chuckled how quickly would that person the person laughing how quickly would they forget right seven seconds yeah right seven seconds later you are out of that person's mind yeah they're, they're walking down the street they're looking at other things they've they don't even remember that same day, um, right. you know, the person with ketchup on their face. No. At all. Now, right. it'd be nice for them to let you know so you can fix it, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we can expect that from people. Right. So, even when worst case scenario happens, it's all, it's it's usually not as bad as we think. Mm-hmm. And again, this is, you know, reality from the, uh, you know, I think we talked in another episode about how imagination, creativity and imagination does not know the difference between negative and positive. Mm-mm. It goes where we aim it, right? So, if you have a powerful imagination, which I think is a great skill and you don't harness that in the right direction, it's going to go to some deep, dark places. And it creates this world in our head that doesn't exist where Mm -hmm. outcomes are so much worse than they would actually be if they actually happened in real life. Right. Right. In our head, if we thought, all right, I got something on my face, someone's going to make fun of me, it would seem so terrible to a lot of people. In real life, they laugh, they walk down the street, seven seconds later, you're you're moving on, no Mm -hmm. one remembers it. Right. So it just doesn't match up with with how our head pumps it up. So- I had a couple notes on on just, you know, trying to to walk through the whole, you know, self-image part of things because I think, you know, sometimes like we said there are actually people judging. A lot of times it's our own self-judgment. And this is through another another type of automatic thought. We talked we talked about those automatic thoughts earlier. I think one example we gave was um should statements, mm-hmm. right? And then another one here is is called mind reading. It's where we our self-judgment is so so intense that it actually jumps out of our mind and into the minds of the people around us and we convince ourselves we know what they're thinking Mm -hmm. and that not only do we know what they're thinking but what they're thinking is is negative and judgmental about us right so that's a type of automatic thought it's it's uh the jargony term would be a maladaptive cognition okay Mm -hmm. so it's like a easy uh, healthy easy yeah no sorry i'm I'm towing (laughs) the line i'm about to get flagged um it it just means it's it's a a negative toxic type of thought Mm -hmm. that's not based on reality and tends to steer us in the wrong direction and that happens a lot where we, we start to mind read the people around us and we think we know what they're thinking and it's all negative about us. And that's not the case at all. We don't know what they're thinking. We are thinking a lot of negative things right. about us and that's influencing that. Yeah. And then you um, change your behavior as a result and then you, yes. you, you mask and you hide and you do things differently than you would have necessarily done. And then you totally. feel kind of trapped by that. Totally. Totally. So if it, you know, we'll get to the external in a second. If it's, it's internal self-image, that's really the problem, not, you know, reputation externally. Then we want to get into the the self one versus t- self two a little bit, right? Self self one is sort of our natural happy go lucky self uh, that's just focused on being present, being mindful, enjoying mm-hmm. life, uh, maybe allowing some joy in. Self two is that critic, that internal critic, mm-hmm. and if if it's an internal image issue, that's the critic is taken over a little bit too much. We got to yep. learn how to kind of befriend that critic, understand it, but just politely ask it to step back. So if it's if it's external, right? If this is a reputation issue, I think the two things that come to mind for me are. Is this the sort of reputation issue that was formed for no clear-cut reason or through no fault of our own? Or is this an issue that was, in fact, one due to trust being betrayed, like lying, substance abuse, infidelity, unreliability, uh, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, Because I think that takes two different paths to repairing things. Let's say it's it's one of the, you know, your reputation has been damaged due to your betrayal of trust or, or mistakes you've made. I think it's important to remember that trust is built very gradually and it can be ruined very quickly, yeah. right? Um, so it it doesn't take much for that to get knocked down a bunch of pegs, but mm-hmm. it takes a while to build it back up. And so um, it requires patience, right? You got to hold yourself accountable. 
And I think it, it, it really has to be done on the scale of a day. You got to take things one day at a time. I know that's a cliche, mm-hmm. but it is kind of real when it comes to building trust back up. You can't expect people to trust you uh, very quickly. You have to, you have to, again, can't expect, we have to accept that yeah. they're not, and we right. have to take it one day at a time to kind of build that up. I think you, you said, I think the, the, the biggest one we focus on with that is patience, right? If you've, if you've reached someone's trust, you're the one who's eager to get that back, and yeah. you can't, you have to accept the fact that the other person is going to require time yes. and more demonstration that you are really actively working towards building that back up, and that doesn't take overnight. That takes a while to build that foundation back again. Totally. And you make a great point because think about what makes people want to rush that. It, it's it's usually their own internal emotions, mm-hmm. right? It's their own the shame, right? The shame they're yep. feeling, the loneliness, mm-hmm. the, the fear. What if this person never accepts me back? What yep. if I'm alone because they don't, mm-hmm. especially in, in couples or if they're facing breakups or things like that? Yep. Um, you know, it's it's the own person's insecurities and, and emotions and fears and things like that that they're struggling with that leads them to force the issue. Yep. And try to speed up the trust building process, which is only going to diminish it even further and knock them back down. Yeah. Right? Um, so taking it one one day at a time is, is definitely key. And I think actions speak louder than words, right? I had a caveat here. Actions speak louder than words, but but communication is important. So communicating and updating people, not only to your intentions to build trust back, but it could be like your intentions to transition your role. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to be in the same role in your family... Let them know what you're trying to accomplish so they're aware of it. Mm-hmm. So communication is important. You don't want to leave people in the dark. If you don't let people know what you're really trying to do, it's rare that they're going to just mind read you right. and actually know what's actually what's going to happen. That being said, actions do speak louder than words, right? You have to walk the walk, so to speak. You can't mm-hmm. just talk the talk. So I think saying what you plan to do differently is important, but then you have to follow through. Actually do it. Yeah. Um, a couple other caveats about this. You know, again, learning to accept that uh, it might take a lot of time uh, for people to come around to your who who you want your new image to be or your new reputation to be, what you want it to look like. Marshand is a great example. You know, he it's probably been two years since he's really done anything, two plus years since he's done anything all that egregious. Mm-hmm. But last year, his peers still voted him most dirty. So, <laughs> you know, I'm sure he's yeah. accepted that that might that might follow him forever. I mean, yeah. like, and maybe he's he actually I think has has you know, um, accepted that because if you listen to him talk, he said, how many of you out there are actually willing to do what it takes to win? Clearly to him, winning was the most important thing. So he's willing to do that. Some people could criticize that. Some people won't. He's fine with that, right? Mm -hmm. He, he can sleep at night knowing that, Hey, I did what it took to, to get where I wanted to get and to win at that level. Um, so some may never adjust again. It it may just be like, because of the length of the uh, time you were in that role or because of the, the extent to which you went, you know, there there is the chance, there are some times in life where people may just always associate you with past times, past ages, past behavior, and there's nothing you can do about that. So you might have to accept it, and you don't have to accept that that's you. You just have to accept that they might never change their view. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the things that comes up a lot is that reputation is really difficult, that initial reputation. People want to label, right, immediately, yep. and then you get st- stuck with that. And I think that a lot of times when that happens, people give up too easily of trying to change it if it's not a reputation that they want to continue to to live right if they don't if they don't feel that that's a re- reflection of them it's yeah. harder to do the work to change the minds of people than it is to just give in and be like okay well I guess I'm just this now and you brought up the class clown I think that that's the one that class clowns can probably relate to mm-hmm. right you get this feedback and it feels good and so yeah. even if it doesn't you know you're masking other things you just continue to do it because it's easier to do that than it would be to try to do something that feels a little bit more like real or authentic to you um well, I, th- I think you make a good point because that, that also touches on how people will continue to do behavior that's bad for them because it's comfortable. Yeah. Right? It, sometimes bad behavior is still comfortable for us because it's our norm. Yeah. It may be bad for us and bad for people around us, but if we're used to it, if, if it's our current habit, it's easier and more comfortable to do it just because yep. we're used to seeing it, yep. right? I refer to it as like the default setting. Yes, right? that's like a great it, way to put it. Uh, yeah. You have to, you know, it's your default to, to be the class clown or your default to be the agitator. Even if it's not giving you what you want yeah. or what it, what's actually fulfilling you, you'll continue to do it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So any other takeaways for, or, um, or I should say any other uh, points you want to make with regard to reputation or image before we move on to the kind of grim drive examples? No, the biggest one, and you, we touched on a lot, was the, the concept of accepting help. Right. Yep. Like, for, you know, Brad's a perfect example of someone who accepted help for his, his whole career and mm-hmm. it led to, it led to some success for him. Um, and I think that that's, that's definitely one of the main points for people listening to this is especially guys who might have that mentality of like, do it myself and don't need help. You do. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make it doesn't cut your legs on from underneath you. It yeah. doesn't make you less of a man. It actually makes you stronger um, and more confident when you when you allow that to happen. Absolutely, I think the point you you were getting into is really key for especially for guys. I feel like to understand because I think there's there's this kind of uh, misunderstanding out there that you know when people look at guys that are that hold it all in, right? They tend to say, well. That's not that's that's not really true strength, right? That that's mm-hmm. not true strength. That's not the right way to do it. To just hold it all in and never open up, and then you know the guys that hold it all in and never open up look at the people that open up, the guys that open up, and they're like, yeah, well, that's that's weakness or that right. kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And neither are right. I mean, I think the guys that hold it in, that takes strength too. Mm-hmm. It takes a ton of strength to hold an emotion and not open up about <laughs> right. it. Of course it does. Like you yeah. have to be an extremely strong person to – I mean I, I've met guys who are in their 50s and have never opened up about a single thing. Imagine like what it's like to mm-hmm. hold that in for your entire life. Of course that takes strength. It's just not all so smart at the same time because it's not going to get you you know, feeling better and enjoying your life to the to the most of your ability to do so. So it's it takes strength. It requires a strong person but it's not smart. Whereas guys that open up – that takes a different type of strength, yep. also a strength, not the same, but a different type of strength. And it, it is a little bit more uh, wise and intelligent because it's going to give you a path to actually feeling good on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a good point that you bring up. So we'll kind of uh, transition now to our, our example. We like to try to give an example of, of what Grim Drive is for, for the listeners. You know, uh, Not always each episode, but most episodes we're going to do this. So uh, did you have one for today, John? Yeah, it's actually it's funny when you talk about class clown because it's I related to that because that that was my role going through school. I was, was it really the class? Oh yeah, the <laughs> class clown. I think at one point I had a teacher told me I was just having a tr- hard time paying attention in class, and it was probably because I just didn't understand the material, so I was doing everything I could to not have to pay attention. Yeah, and he actually was like, "John, come up to the front of the class and just do stand up." I think he just had it with me and was trying to find yeah, a creative yeah, yeah. way to do it. Um, or so, he was trying to put you in your place, or and right, the yeah, hell maybe, out of you. maybe yeah. a little bit of both. Uh, <laughs> either way, I I still remember it and it worked. So. Uh, kudos. Did you actually pull off the stand-up? No, I froze. <laughs> so, um, which, which gave the class a laugh, uh, anyway. So, um, but so it, my, my person for Grim Drive today was actually, uh, a comedian that I just emulated growing up, uh, it was Jim Carrey. Okay. And he was, he's someone, when you learn a little bit more about his background, it was really, really interesting. And, um, I encourage, he did a commencement speech, uh, back in 2017, I believe it was highly recommend. He talks about fear. Um, but he, he opens up a lot about his, his childhood growing up and how it was really difficult. He's got a fascinating story. His life fascinating. Story, yeah. Um, and you know, I think with a lot of times with, with these sort of like Uber successful people in their fields, we mm-hmm. sort of take for granted of like, they just became that, right. We just, we only hear about them when they start to become famous, but he talks a lot about like he was at, um, or a, a comedy place called the yuck yucks. I think it was like 11 years before mm-hmm. he got his, his big break. That's a long time yeah, to yeah. commit to something. And, um, I think it was either Dane Cook or another comedian who who talked about, you know, if he had the option of going back and being a stand-up comic or being a neurosurgeon, he would choose the path of neurosurgeon because it's just – it's a grind. It's hard yeah, to do. Yep. And Jim's, you know, path through that, he talks a great deal about the struggle with having to go through those things. But it was really, really important for him to be the person that allowed people – when he was around people – they could he could bring out people's most authentic selves, and that was like his purpose and reward. And um, you know that's and I, and he continues to do so. His his career has sort of shifted, and he's been in different places and things like that. But that that purpose that he speaks about, especially in that commencement, um, really really stood out to me. That that was sort of his relentless pursuit of goals and passion was, was that he wanted to be a person that allowed people to feel their their, their best selves, and he continues to do that work. And so. When I was thinking about it, um, you know, roles and things like that that generated my own yeah, my own yeah, stuff, yeah. and class clown came up, and so comedian was sort of running through my head, and that's why Jim Carrey kind of came up for me. That's great, yeah. And I think um, you know, I've heard a lot of comics talk about their path and the grind and, and how difficult it is, and there's some great aspects to it too. I mean, the camaraderie and, yeah. and and that aspect of their their paths, but the grind always comes through in terms of how. They, they go to these, you know, uh, hole-in-the-wall clubs and they got to be always on their game mm-hmm. trying to develop uh, their their kind of approach and their routine. Um, there's a guy I know named, named Peter who actually created a, a documentary called One Line Therapy, which is on, uh, co- you know, comedy and, and the life of, of comedians and things like that and how uh, comedy can be very therapeutic. I think a lot of comedians struggle with mental health too, which is, is interesting. And I think mm-hmm. that tends to be their outlet 
to to making sense of the world and to to venting about some of the stuff that's that's their what maybe that's why he called it one line therapy right it's their way of kind of getting uh, stuff out and working their way through things right we reference robin williams in a, in a i think in the michael phelps adhd mm-hmm. episode um uh, was it that one or was it Kevin Love? Might be no, Kevin it was Kevin Love. Love. Kevin yeah. Love and Anxiety. We talked about Robin Williams and how, you know, he would, you know, exercise all day and then do stand, stand up at night as a way to kind of fight off the demons. So, yep. um, so that's a great example. My, my Grim Drive example, um, you know, for today is the, it's the, the guy who was, I think he's the producer. So his name's Alan Scott and he's the producer of the Queen's Gambit. Um, mm-hmm. So this guy, I think he's 81 years old now and it took him, Queen's Gambit is this show on Netflix now. It's about, you know, a chess prodigy who also had, uh, you know, clear cut substance abuse issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but this guy's name is Alan Scott and he is, so he bought the rights to the book. Uh, book was written in 1983, I think, by Walter Tavis um, called the Queen's Gambit, I believe. And he, so this guy, Alan Scott, bought the rights to this book in the late 80s and it just he's, you know it took 30 years to produce this thing to make it happen nine rewrites i think over mm-hmm. the span of 30 years a lot of tragedy surrounding it too you know heath ledger wanted to direct it and was on board they even had meetings um uh, in new york to start the process in 2007 before he tragically kind of passed away i think he actually passed away like one the night right after this guy talked to him about oh, the man. next steps um and alan scott was actually in a hospital bed with covid when queen's gamma was first released in, <laughs> in, on netflix so to me, that's just the determination it takes, the grim drive it takes to really not let something fall off, right? To keep coming back, keep rewriting, keep driving to make it happen because you're passionate about it and, and you think it's worth it. Um, to me, that that uh, that speaks to what we think kind of grim drive is. Yeah. Um, so I think that's it for today. Let's see. So a quick call to action uh, for people listening, you know, just a, just a reminder to click subscribe on, on your podcast listening platform. We, we're up on... Apple Podcasts and Spotify and some other platforms as well. Uh, if you can, just subscribe, uh, rate and review as well. You know, we really appreciate all the feedback. We are offering a pair of free Celtics tickets to a game for the 2021 to 2022 season. If you're not a Celtics fan, we'll hook you up with some tickets to it to a non-Celtics game. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't want to just just be Boston fans here. So, uh, one lucky person will win tickets out of all who write an honest review for us in the first three months of 2021. You can enter to win these tickets by taking a screenshot of your review and submitting that through the Contact Us option on our website at grimdrive.com. It will ask you for your name and email address and provide you with an option to upload the screenshot. Uh, just make sure you take the screenshot of your review before you click submit You know, on your phone because sometimes once you hit submit, you can't see the review anymore. Um, one other reminder, all the helpful information and links that we've described today can be accessed in the show notes and on our website at grimdrive.com. Thanks for listening today to the Grim Drive podcast for this discussion about Brad Marshand and reputation. We'll be back next week to talk about Josh Gordon and substance abuse. Thanks for joining us, everyone.